As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Let's think about that for a minute. The Bible says we were dead in them, okay? What do dead people do? Do they think? Do they act? No. Dead people are incapable of anything. They're dead. It doesn't say we were sick with our trespasses or sins. We were ill in our trespasses or sins. No, we were dead. We can't respond. We can't do anything. Something needs to regenerate us, right? Make us alive. So as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Paul is saying here, this was us. We were not in tune to God at all. We were not interested in the things of God. Basically, we were slaves to our flesh. And it said, he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. God made us alive. I didn't do anything to choose to make myself alive. I wasn't able to. I was dead. But God, in his mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Hi, and welcome to One Little Candle, a place where genuine believers are encouraged, empowered, and inspired to be the light that God calls us to be by contending for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. And in case you're thinking that you can't make a difference in your own little corner of the world, Yes, you can, because all it takes is one little candle. I'm your host, Rebecca Bershwinger. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to part two of Who Chose Who? God's Amazing Grace. Before I get into this, I just want to remind you, if you're not already, to please pray for Afghanistan. Pray for those in Afghanistan. Pray not just for Americans, but for everyone who is over there. Believers, unbelievers, all are really in danger. May God put a hedge of protection around these people. May they feel his peace in their hearts. And may they be strong and equipped to persevere to the end. Pray for God to draw so near to them that they are just overwhelmed by his presence, a sense of his love, presence, peace, and power. And pray for our government leaders here in our nation, well, to get their act together here and to begin to make wise decisions, to turn to God, for God to really perhaps um, instill in their hearts a hunger for his wisdom, for God's wisdom and discernment when it comes to, to running this nation. Because, folks, we are just on a downward spiral here with this administration. Because as you can see, an administration, when it's ungodly, when it's weak, does not just affect us. It doesn't, doesn't just affect our nation, but 
it has a rippling effect felt throughout the world, and, and we are seeing that right now. So let's be on our knees for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who don't know Christ to come to him through this, and that many souls will be saved in what's going on in Afghanistan with the evil intentions of men. We know God will turn them. He will take them and he will use them for his good purpose. That much we know. But anyway, part two, who chose who God's amazing grace. If you haven't listened to part one, I would really encourage you to do so so you can get a grip on what I'm talking about. But the first part was mainly to share my testimony on how I came to know and embrace the wonderful, wonderful doctrine of sovereign election, the doctrine that I once despised. Um, I, I want to share with you in this episode what my objections were and how scripturally they were answered. Now, I'm not going to be covering every last detail, but I will point you to godly leaders who do go into great detail about this. So I want to provide you with the best resources that I can for you to lay bare your soul, all your presuppositions to God as a truth seeker with these resources and his word to lay it all out there and just ask for God's truth no matter what. But before I get into what some of my objections were and, and how they were answered, I'll talk a little bit about what's meant by divine election in case you're not completely sure about this. And I'm aware that there's much misunderstanding and controversy that surrounds this subject, the doctrine of election. And unfortunately, it is something that divides us as Christians, and it shouldn't be. But what I want to do is just walk this out practically. And on both sides here, we have a great deal of maturity as we do this because our emotions can come into play and then really throw us off course. I've noticed emotions run high when this subject is discussed. But no matter what side of the fence you fall on, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's please keep that in mind. But I believe the doctrine of sovereign election is a clear doctrine of the Bible. Charles Spurgeon, who is known as the Prince of Preachers, I love his quote here. He says, we give our hands to every man that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, be he what he may or who he may. The doctrine of election, like the great act of election itself, is intended to divide, but not between Israel and Israel but between Israel and the Egyptians, not between saint and saint, but between saints and the children of the world. A man may be evidently of God's chosen family, and yet though elected, he may not believe in the doctrine of election. I hold that there are many savingly called who do not believe in effectual calling, and that there are a great many who persevere to the end who do not believe the doctrine of final perseverance. We do hope the hearts of many are a great deal better than their heads. We do not set their fallacies down to any willful opposition to the truth as it is in Jesus, but simply to an error in their judgments, which we pray God to correct. We hope that if they think us mistaken too, they will reciprocate the same Christian courtesy. And when we meet around the cross, we hope that we shall ever feel that we are one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so divine election. What is the meaning of divine election? Because words like election, predestination, phrases such as God's chosen people, 
they are found throughout the Bible. Anyone who believes the Bible is God's word or reads their Bible, they have to deal with these terms. We can't just simply skim over them and ignore them. It's our duty as Christians to have a biblical understanding of exactly what these terms mean. Dr. J.I. Packer gives this biblical definition of divine election when he writes, the verb elect means to select or choose out. The biblical doctrine of election is that before the creation God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace, for it is unconstrained and unconditional, not merited by anything in those who are its subjects. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation, so it is a wonder and matter of endless praise that he should choose to save any of us, and doubly so, when his choice involved the giving of his own son to suffer as sin-bearer for the elect. So the word election means to choose or to select, and it conveys the idea that those of us who are believers, well, it's not an accident. We're believers because God chose us. So when we speak of divine election, we're saying that God chose a certain group and called them out from the world to be his own special people. Who were God's chosen special people in the Old Testament? The nation of Israel. So Deuteronomy chapter 7 talks about Israel being God's chosen people. God had said to Israel that he didn't set his love on them. He didn't choose them because they were more in number than any of the other peoples, because actually they were fewer. But it says, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, saying the same thing, that God had chosen to set his affections on them. God's love was directed toward Israel in a way that it just was not directed toward any other nations. But yet God doesn't mention any distinguishing features as to why. The only distinguishing feature you see in these um, verses in the Bible, it, focused, it focuses on the electing love of God because he chose to set his love on them. So yes, God has chosen a people for himself people whom he set his redemptive love and favor on. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says this, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 6 also says, Just as he chose us, that's believers in Christ, in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. See, nothing about according to man, but according to God, right? The kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So let's look at the word chose in verse four. In the original language, we have the Greek word eklego. This is the compound of the words ek and lego. 
Ek means out, Lego means I. So put them together, you have Ek Lego, which means out, I say. And what you have here is the idea of a calling out, a selection, or a personal choosing of someone. To quote Rick Renner, he says, God looked out on the horizon of human history and he saw us. And when he saw us, his voice echoed forth from heaven, out I say. And in that flash, our destinies were divinely sealed. We were separated by God from a lost and dying world and he called us to be his own. But why did God do this? Again, the Bible does not say why God decided to set his love on us. We do know it wasn't because of anything he found in us, anything good, because as the Bible clearly points out, we're hostile to God, we're enemies of God, and we're children of wrath when we come into this world. Scripture reveals very clearly that if we're left to ourselves, we will always choose against Christ, again, because of our hostile disposition to God. Because the Bible says that we are dead spiritually, we're dead in our sins. We have hearts of stone. And we need a heart of flesh. Hearts of stone, they don't have any interest in seeking the things of God. Only a heart of flesh does. But someone has to put that heart of flesh in us first. Here's some scriptures to back up what the condition is of unregenerated man. Unregenerated meaning someone who hasn't been regenerated, right? We need to be regenerated in order to know God, in order to come to him. Romans chapter 3 Verse 11, let's do verses 11 and 12. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Then the Bible gives descriptions of the ones who don't understand, okay? But we get to verse 18, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans chapter 8 verses 7 and 8 says the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. And then we have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Let's think about that for a minute. The Bible says we were dead in them, okay? What do dead people do? Do they think? Do they act? No. Dead people are incapable of anything. They're dead. It doesn't say we were sick with our trespasses or sins. We were ill in our trespasses or sins. No. We were dead. We can't respond. We can't do anything. Something needs to regenerate us, right? Make us alive. So as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Paul is saying here, this was us. We were not in tune to God at all. We were not interested in the things of God. Basically, we were slaves to our flesh. And it said, he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. God made us alive. I didn't do anything to choose to make myself alive. I wasn't able to. I was dead. But God, in his mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Amen. You see, and this is where I'm not going to get into it, but I want to direct you to the resources that will, because if you don't believe in sovereign election, I know it's been called Calvinism. Calvin did not come up with this. The Apostle Paul elaborated on it. It's all throughout our Bible. Um, you know, Calvinism, Calvinist, whatever, that's the world always slaps labels. And the people who do not embrace sovereign election, well, they're known as Arminians. But there is a little something interesting that I did learn about the background of Arminianism, those who do not believe in sovereign election. What I learned was that Arminianism came from Pelagianism. Pelagianism was taught by a man named Pelagius. Pelagius taught that man is well, but that he just needs a teacher. So basically, Pelagius denied the doctrine of original sin. And by the way, this... Um, Pelagius, these arguments began sometime after 370 AD, a few hundred years after Paul already had laid out in God's word clearly the doctrine of sovereign election. But that's what Pelagianism teaches. And by the way, these heresies, what they were called by the early church, these were brought before several godly men and leaders. These were a lot of our church creeds came up in order to weigh these matters, these heresies that were coming along, such as Pelagianism, because we don't just need a teacher. We are not well when we were born. I just read you verses that state quite the opposite. Then comes along semi-Pelagianism. That taught that man is sick and he needs a physician. Again, the Bible doesn't say that we're sick or ill in our sins. We're dead. No physician is going to help us. No physician is going to resurrect us, okay? Man is dead. He needs a resurrection because of original sin. But then you have Arminianism taught by a man by the name of Arminius. This came sometime after 1560 AD. But many modern day Arminius, and that again, that is someone who does not believe in the doctrine of sovereign election. And Arminius believes that there was something within us, each person who was saved, there's something within them that would cause a person who was dead in their sins to be able to come alive to Christ and respond to the message of the gospel. But I, I don't see how a dead person can do that. A person that the Bible so clearly says is all about the flesh, all about the world, all about Satan, and is an enemy of God. Um, and again, there's the word dead. I can't help but use it. But somehow we can respond on our own. Man and God do not work together as co-laborers in accomplishing our redemption. No. Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor. Arminianism would say that we're deserving of God granting us eternal life because we chose to respond to his call. Really think deeply about that one, okay? I know it was hard for me. I wrestled and wrestled with this. It was an emotional roller coaster because I did not want to embrace this ridiculous, what I thought at the time, ridiculous way of thinking. But these teachings, I just wanted to give that little quick background, these teachings that led to the 
Arminianism, as it is known today, they're based on teachings that were over and over by the church and councils and creeds declared as heresy. The doctrine of predestination, which is, by the way, the historic Orthodox Christian position, but, you know, it's been held, this belief, by many fine, godly men, well-known and revered men in the history of the church, such as Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and then we have the Protestant reformers of the 16th century, Jonathan Edwards, one of the most gifted theologians of all time, George Whitefield, C.H. Spurgeon, that's Charles Spurgeon, some of the most outstanding men in Christian history. And then you have your more recent men, such as B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, Abraham Kuyper, James P. Boyce, Arthur W. Pink, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, Dr. J.I. Packer, Dr. D. James Kennedy, Dr. John MacArthur, Dr. James White, Dr. Wayne Grudem, Dr. R.C. Sproul, Dr. John Piper, many, many other names that I could list here. Paul Washer, one of my favorites, who embraced the doctrine of predestination. And, you know, I talk about Paul having talked about it in the Bible, but do you know Jesus preached it as well? Yes, Jesus. And when he did, he watched many in that crowd walk away. In John chapter 6, verses 65 and 66, we hear Jesus saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Granted him from the Father. And then it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It's really humbling when we think about how God alone gets the credit for our salvation. I've said before, we have this pride within us. We do not realize we have. But something like this doctrine, I think our response to it when it's fueled with disgust really does manifest from our pride within it destroys our pride, but it elevates God's grace in saving a people for himself and not because of you or I, but strictly for his glory and his glory alone. I love a quote from the London Baptist Confession. This was written back in 1689 and it's chapter 10 and it's about effectual calling. Number one, it says, those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. That, to me, just puts it so well. And what is wrong with God calling us that way? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it amazing or even mind-blowing? It should be. What's wrong if that's how God chose to call us? 
Number two, it says, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature. Here's what people don't like, this part here. Being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses. Again, there we are, dead. We've got to be passive in this. Until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than which raised up Christ from the dead. I know these are lofty concepts, but please wrestle with them. Please. I promise you, if you're willing to, with an open mind and heart, and trust in God for the truth, it will be worth it in the end. You know, some people say that the Bible teaches both sovereign election and free will, and that someday in heaven we'll have this explained. But how can that be? Because both sides teach the opposite, really. Because one side says God is the cause of our quote-unquote choice to receive Christ, but the other side says when it comes down to it, we are the cause. And as we know, when there's truth involved, if you've taken apologetics class, truth, there's a right and there's a wrong. Both sides cannot be right. One has to be wrong. And we know God. God is very orderly. God makes no mistakes. He's consistent. Scripture, which is God-breathed, is consistent. It's never going to teach two opposite contradictory things on any subject. Chapter 3 of the Historic Westminster Confession of Faith opens with these words. It says, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Um, adding the qualification that God is not the author of sin. People are not puppets. And this statement was based on Ephesians 1 chapter 11 having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We are not robots. We have so many choices in our free will that God has given us graciously. But I'm sorry, one of those choices wasn't to regenerate ourselves, to resurrect ourselves from the dead. We can't. God had to do it for us. They say salvation comes by faith, right? Faith in believing. Doesn't the Bible say that faith is a gift? The faith to believe is even a gift from God. How about that word foreknew, right? I was like, oh yeah, as my former pastor's wife said, no, God just looked down through the corridors of time and he saw who would and wouldn't choose him. And so then he predestined them according to their choice. That was my belief, because you even have those who, who talk about Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The text reads, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And some say, well, doesn't this suggest that, well, foreknowledge came before predestination. So predestination is really just God's foreknowledge or foreknowing or seeing in advance what a person will do. And he sees who it is that will respond in faith to the gospel. He just predestinates based on those he knows who will believe. Again, that's exactly what I thought made perfect sense to me. But is it surprising 
that foreknowledge would come before predestination? Again, God being a personal God, wouldn't he need to already know a person? The person, it says God knew us before the foundation of the world. Don't you need to foreknow them before you predestinate them? Would God predestinate unknown persons? So what does it mean then for God to foreknow somebody? The word foreknew, it doesn't just mean to know future actions in advance, okay? The meaning is much more precise than that. The word foreknew, the word foreknew in Greek is prohinosko. And in Romans 8.29, it's a verb, okay? It's an action word. So foreknowing is something done by God. So what does God do when it says those whom God foreknew? I made the mistake of just assuming meanings. And then after studying and doing homework, I realized I didn't really know the meaning at all. It seemed like one thing at face value, but a completely other once I studied it. And this is where comparing scripture with scripture comes in too. The question with the word foreknew is who is the subject? Is it God or is it humans? Because depending on who the subject is, the meaning is going to greatly differ. So the verb, the Greek verb for the word foreknew, which is prohinosko, it's used three times in the New Testament, and it's used with God being the subject. In Romans 8.29, in Romans 11.2, and then 1 Peter 1.20, God is the subject. So this really matters when we ask the question, who or what is foreknown by God? In Romans 8.29, we have the direct object of the verb. It's a pronoun, and it refers back to the called of the previous verse in verse 28. Romans 28.29, and let me read it, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then verse 29, for those God foreknew, that's the called, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So God foreknew the called, okay, in verse 28. In verses 28 and 29, God foreknew the called. Didn't foreknow the actions, he foreknew the called. Romans 11.2 says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew, whom he foreknew, not actions, whom his people, whom he foreknew. And 1 Peter 1.20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He was foreknown. And 1 Peter 1.20, the object is actually Jesus Christ himself. In Romans 11.2, the object, the verb to foreknow was referring to was his people. And in Romans 8.29, the object of who was foreknown were the called. So each of these verses, they portray God as foreknowing persons, not actions. And when 1 Peter 1.20 reads, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So God foreknew Christ, right? Or did he just simply know that Jesus would make the right decisions or, or have faith in, in his Father? No. What it speaks of is God's personal intimacy, his affection for his beloved son. Dr. James White says this, to say that God foreknows acts, faith, behavior, 
choices, etc., is to assume something about the term that is not witnessed in the biblical text. God foreknows persons, not things. And what about the Old Testament as far as the word foreknew in the New Testament? What about the Old Testament? There's a Hebrew word, yada, and it refers in a number of instances to God's knowing of individuals. Jeremiah 1.5, where God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Personal, right? And he goes on to say, before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. God knew Jeremiah before he even came into existence. And God had already chosen to consecrate him and appoint him as a prophet to the nations. What about God's knowing of Moses in Exodus 33:17? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. God knowing an individual intimately and personally. And we go back to Israel, where the word yada was used to refer to God possessing a personal intimacy and affection. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Speaking of Israel, God says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And what's saying is, You, Israel, only have I known. He didn't know about Israel. He knew Israel. He didn't know about you and I and what we were going to do. He knew us. And then we have the word yada again used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, what was the result of his knowing Eve? A child, a deep, personal, intimate relationship. So that word, it's, it's consistent throughout and helping us to know how it's used in the New Testament. God foreknows. He chooses to enter into a relationship with you. He predestines. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. Again, why is God so active in all these things? Because we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Our salvation is a divine accomplishment by God. God and God alone has saved you. God and God alone has saved me. And it's all to the praise and the glory of his name. In answer to the belief that foreknowledge is God foreseeing in the future actions that people would take and making his choices based on their actions, a man by the name of John Hendricks has said this, if God knew someone would choose hell even before he created them, then this was a fixed certainty even before their creation. Why did God go ahead and create them? Obviously, still in that kind of a view, Still within God's providence, these people be lost. Or, if God already foreknew who would be saved, then how can they continue to argue that he's trying to save every man? Certainly, God already knows who the persons will be, so why should he send the Holy Spirit to those he knows will reject him? I hope that gives you more insight as to God foreknowing people. The personal foreknowing, the intimacy, and knowing the people not their actions, although he knew actions, what our actions would be too, of course. Another problem I had was evangelism. I said, God, why would people evangelize then? If you've already chosen, you're going to cause whoever to come to you anyway. Nobody needs to evangelize if that's the case. What's the point in it? Well, <laughs> one great answer, which is true, is because God tells us to. 
God tells us to. He commands us to. Paul elaborates on sovereign election in Romans chapters 8 and 9, but then in Romans 10, you hear the words, how shall they hear without a preacher? So does that contradict Romans 8 and 9? Or could it be that through the gospel, through evangelism, that that is God's means to the ends? God's ordained both the ends and the means, right? The ends, what is the end result? His elect coming to faith. By what means? The gospel and the proclamation of it. In John 10, verse 16, Jesus was speaking of his sheep amongst the Gentiles, and he said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And he said this to the Jews. Some great verses on this are in Acts chapter 13, and this is verses 43 through 48. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed the gospel? As many as had been appointed to eternal life. The ends, the salvation of the elect. The means, the proclaiming of the gospel. You know, we don't know who the elect are just by looking. People aren't wearing the letter E on their shirt or tattooed on them somewhere or stamped on their foreheads. So we need to go into the world and preach the gospel. Knowing ahead of time, of course, that only the elect are going to respond to the preaching of the gospel. It's the gracious act of God in electing, predestinating, and regenerating people that he's chosen. That's the only way anyone would ever turn to Christ. As Dr. R.C. Sproul has said, if the final decision for the salvation of fallen sinners were left in the hands of fallen sinners, we would despair all hope that anyone would be saved. Don't we pray to God for people to come to him? We're always praying to God, oh, Lord, please save this person. My sweet grandmother, she doesn't know you. Oh, Lord God, draw her near to you. Call her to you. Help her, God, to come to know you, right? Don't we pray those things no matter what side of the fence that we're on as far as sovereign election goes? Well, aren't we asking God, who we know has the power to bring someone from death to life, aren't we asking him to do that? You know, if we don't trust that he can help someone to come to him, the unregenerated heart, then why do we bother praying to him for their salvation? Or do we maybe feel that, you know, God can only do something outside of them, like, you know, woo them um, or encourage them? but never put anything inside of them. Why does he have to do something outside of us? Why can't he work his work on the inside of us? Take out our heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is going to desire Christ. 
Why bother to pray for them if we don't believe that God can't do a work inside? What is regeneration? I know I've mentioned regeneration, and Dr. J.I. Packer gives a great definition of it. He says, Regeneration is a spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which a person's inherently sinful nature is so radically impacted, his disposition so affected, his mind so illumined, his will so liberated. I like that. Will so liberated that a person can and will respond to God in saving faith and willingly live in accord with the will of God. Because if we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we're a slave to it, right? We're not free to do anything. But God's regenerating us. It liberates us. So what if we had nothing to do with it? Right? He's freed us. He's liberated us. And that's going to end it for part two of today's episode. I'm just going to cut this episode in half because I really don't want to overwhelm you with everything. So I will have part three coming up next week. And I just ask that you take into consideration, into prayerful consideration, all you've heard today and and in the first episode as well. Please, if you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to that. But I just pray that you will prayerfully consider this and not just write it off because you can't somehow wrap your brain around it or or imagine in your imagination God having saved people in this manner. I just ask that you would not put God, <clears throat> that you would not limit God because our minds are so finite. They are so limited. Let's not let our limited minds limit God. And let's keep in mind that he does not think or act in the manner in which we do in our limited and sinful minds. So please just practice being that one little candle. I always end the episode with how can you be that one little candle? Please be that one little candle by keeping an open heart and an open mind, a humble heart and a humble mind. Prayerfully bring what you've heard before God and trust him to provide you with the answers. Until next week, you take care and God bless.